Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to Tiny Revolutions with me, Tiff Stevenson, the podcast where I speak to comedians, actors, writers, directors, performers about the political movements, art, films and television that has been revolutionary to them, or a tiny revolution at least. My guest this week is, how would I describe him? Comedian, actor, podcaster, writer, producer, senior correspondent, or I believe senior Latin correspondent for The Daily Show, it's Al Madrigal. Hello. Hi. Hi. Great to see you again. (laughs) Great to see you. I I just want to say, yeah, you were so nice to me when I was in London. I was in London for two months, and I just want to say that Tiff is uh, one of the best people, because a lot of comics wouldn't have taken the time, and and you were so, so kind to me and welcoming, so I, I will always have a fond place in my heart for Tiff. Stevenson, ladies and yes, gentlemen. it was all a plot just to get you to do this podcast <laughs> like a year later. Oh, it's, it's probably two years now since you were in London, is it? it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, two years crazy, and that movie still hasn't come out yet. Yes, I just uh, I read about it on your Wikipedia because I know you, it's always very odd going on to let's get that out of the way going on to people's Wikipedia like a summary of who they are because you go, I know this person, um, and I knew you were shooting a film and you weren't allowed to talk about it, but it does say on Wikipedia what the film is uh it's a marvel well, film it, correct yeah and also it's uh it was supposed to come out in july of 2020 and has been pushed to january 22 so i think the uh all of the hush hush top secret treatment that those types of movies get is that's all out the window so it just doesn't matter at this point who cares about anything tiff <laughs> who cares about anything anymore um well it's this is a perfect podcast for during this lockdown time because we are going to talk about stuff that you love and stuff that's influenced you and stuff that's been revolutionary and i will start at the very very start so what drove you in the first place so obviously you're excellent at what you do that's why I get people on I'm like oh they're a tiny revolution I I watch them I love them was this always the plan was this like by design that you ended up doing stand-up or was it a completely different plan well I I loved stand-up comedy from a very young age I just loved television um there was an old show here and uh, i'm not sure you saw it's ancient first days of hbo called dream on you remember that with brian ben ben oh yes it was all about tv wasn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i was that kid the, the title sequence has a, a boy just sitting in front of plopped in front of a television and i both my parents worked full time and so i was raised by tv and just loved it i loved everything uh, comedy and would write you there was a SCTV's uh, Second City Television with Rick Moranis, Martin Short, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, right? Yeah, so, that's right. So just an amazing cast. So I would I watch that and it was scrambled and I'd be able to watch half of it and try to watch that and a bold black and white television. And then luckily there were my neighbors were comedians. Ah. So down the block was this guy, Michael Meehan, and then um, a 
across the street a little bit was Robin Williams influenced this guy, Michael Pritchard. And then at my high school, David Letterman used to have a local comedian on that he started with named Bob Sarlat. So on career day, um, every single career day in my high school, there was a door that just said comedy. Wow. And, and he would show his old um, Letterman tapes and VHS tapes that he would go and, and show us all. And then he was the voice of Waffalo Bill. So he'd talk to us about a career in voiceover and he'd talk to us about acting and all the, the roads that comedy led to. And so I remember going to that for four years, knowing it was a job. But then something interesting happened where my we, we grew up very poor when I was little. My mom got a job as a secretary in a company and ended up rising through the ranks of that company and buying the company out from the owner and quadrupling wow. it in size. So um, this is happening while I'm in high school and this is happening as I'm graduating college. I was never a good student, um, just always grifting as much as I possibly could take, you know, finding tests, fishing tests out of a you know garbage <laughs> can. I had keys to the place. I was just, if you remember the movie um, Rushmore with Jason Schwartzman. Yes. Yeah. I, I did that. It just was a member of every single club um, and uh, had an article in the newspaper. With it student blows, body. <laughs> blows my <laughs> mind, right? What you're telling me now, the idea that you, just to go back to that before we move on to your mom's business and talk about your parents, because I would love to talk about your sort of earliest political influences and stuff. But that, the idea that when you went into school and there was a door that said, like that that was a career option because here... That just, I think anything in the arts, and I think this could be a class thing, which is also quite interesting. I think working class people in the UK are very much um, encouraged to not, like the art isn't something that could be a career or have money behind it. That's true. So the idea that you could just walk into it, like on careers day, there was someone there going, this is a job, by the way. Just being a funny, smart ass is, is a job. So it was something you always thought you could do. There was nothing to say to you, our magical can't do stand up because you can see someone doing it, making money at it, right? And you live on the block. Well, my parents said otherwise uh, right. because okay. they wanted me to join this family business. Uh, but the fact that I knew it was a job, so from an early age, and then I was able to, you know, pursue it once I saw thirty coming. So I started doing stand up. My very first set was when I was twenty eight years old. Right. And then mine too, to, I think exactly the oh, same. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And which is the, not ancient, but um, on the brink of being possibly too late to, to really <laughs> just put in the effort that you need to. And and when we do talk about starting and you know the the ten thousand hours, you know, or whatever, it, there has to be a tremendous amount of effort in the beginning for sure. Uh, to because you're meeting other comedians you're finding about you know out about all these opportunities and it takes you a lot of it takes a lot of work to get good i remember teaching a someone asked me to teach a comedy class it was a disaster because i remember telling the class that they needed to invest about 14 years right and everyone went forget up. that no this is horrible <laughs> we just want to dabble i don't understand we just Trying to be funny at work. Yeah. Well, if you had any idea, I often think yes, I'm, I'm always fascinated to ask other comics this. Like, if you had any idea how long it would take to get good and find your voice, would you have still done it? I would have just started it so much earlier. Right. Okay. Right. You still done it. You just started earlier. Yeah. I'm the exact same age as Arge Barker. Right. And I remember walking in the, and if you don't know who Arge Barker is, he's absolutely hilarious. He's a San Francisco comedian yeah, who went to Australia. And I remember first night in the San Francisco punchline watching uh, on a Sunday night, watching Arge do a set and just kill and be his smart, brilliant self and thinking, oh, okay, that's where the bar is, uh, right? Uh, rise to that level. And that was what was great about San Francisco is that um, we had Patton Oswalt and Blaine Capatch and, you know, just brilliant comedians coming out of the city, Greg Proops. 
Um, Isle of Proops as well. Yeah, yeah, there's, I mean, so many very funny comics. Sue Murphy, uh, you just you, you can go on and on and on. So San Francisco was one of those great sort of comedy feeder cities before you got to, you know, L.A. or New York. So the, the bar was high there. Um, and watching Arge, who started when he was 18, um, I knew I had a lot of catching up to do. So he had a, a 10 year jump on me. I just wish if I could go back and I knew the, the you know, length of time you need to dedicate to this profession, I would have just uh, pulled a Dave Chappelle and started when I was 15. Right. <laughs> right. Just an absolute baby. But I think the older you get, the more you have to say. And I, That's what I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. The flip side is that we had life experience. I had something to discuss. Um, so at the parents family business was firing people. Um, so I fired people for a living. Tell me about that then. So your mom manages to buy this this is wild. So she's working in the company, rises through the ranks and then just takes it out from under them. Well, more or less. I think the guy was looking to exit. So it's not like she did a hostile takeover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hostile takeover of the company. The guy, she pressured him. She's such a shark that she just <laughs> manipulated this poor businessman. No, he was looking for an out and she just was there. It's great timing. And then it was logical that the people that, uh, you know, came from nothing, the eldest son would join the family business. So I shifted majors. I was this business communications major with an emphasis in human resources, HR. And I joined this company and I was miserable. And uh, but I had an opportunity to make a fine living and you know, to have a house and a family and just sort of live the life that they wanted me to. But I think watching my mother take this huge risk in purchasing this company empowered me to take that risk myself. So um, it's very easy to be complacent and just sort of sit in a job that is paying you. But I had this thing, you know, from a very young age, from back to 15 years old to 14 when I was at the comedy career day, um, you know, I definitely had the itch to try stand up. So, and once I got in, just everything sort of took off. It was amazing. So, your early material then was drawn from you doing this work for your mum, or was not, it? Not, no, no, not, never, not about never that. Never has been, never really talked about it on stage. Tried to talk about it, realized, realized that the crowd just hated uh, it. was people like, oh, no, we hate the guy that fires people. <laughs> Um, and I hated myself for firing people. So like they had it coming. Um, if that's any, makes you feel more sympathetic to me. Full Chicago. Just, yeah. <laughs> they only had themselves to blame. They really did. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I just rarely talked about it when I was on stage, you know, when you're, you're in it for the first two years, you really, I don't, I, I can remember a couple of jokes, but I'm embarrassed to even repeat them. 
pretty intense. So how was that in your house growing up, like politically? Do you have an earliest political memory? Do you see like a protest or on TV? Oh, I do. I do. My and a lot of Latinos in the United States were conservative uh, because my dad so uh, raised Catholic. My both my parents uh, went to Catholic, you know, parochial schools um, in their respective neighborhoods. Uh, and, you know, Latinos, my dad was certainly one that liked to kick the ladder out. Um, and he was very generous with his friends, but just felt like I work for this, this is mine. And the mentality that he was not going to share anything with anyone and until immigration became an issue in the United States. He, they were both um, Republican because they were, they were greedy. They were vo voting with their pocketbook, but um, at this point, you know, my father has since passed away, but my mom is, um, I think, you know, anything to get Donald Trump out of office and uh, just very, very liberal in her thinking and wants to, you know, give as much of her money away as she possibly can. I think there's a really interesting thing there, what you said about your dad kind of kicking the ladder out. I think sometimes we can have less empathy for people that are like us because we go, we managed to do it. You know, that kind of bootstraps yeah. narrative. Sure. We got ourselves out of the shit and into a place where we're doing well for ourselves. So actually you can do it as well. Like, <laughs> and I mean, there's that old saying that you start off like kind of left and then you get older and older and people get more right wing as they get older. <laughs> yeah. I found that uh, with uh, quite a few of my friends, you know, and uh, that the opposite has happened, especially, you know, Donald Trump was so polarizing. And so it was such a traumatic thing to have him, as president for four years. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that his, you know, microphone has uh, been uh, disconnected <laughs> for the time being. So uh, I, I really do think that we, we found out who a lot of people are in, in the United States. I, you know, I was on stage when he was running for office and saying, where are you? Where, where are you? I, just raise your hand. I, they, you know, I know there's 40% of you. There's a chance. And I, I think you fall into three categories. I think you're all either you're idiots, racist, or just greedy. That's it. That's all I can or a combination of all three. But where are you? I just uh, and one I remember one guy I go, oh, it's brave. And because uh, <laughs> why? It's just you forgot religious you know just i come from a very christian family and then to my point it's like how could you support such a heathen if you were going yeah. to yeah then okay all right so you're religious he's against everything that you you preach about well you regard to be moral like Crazy. kind of family yeah. values right ridiculous there's you know a huge evangelical voting block here in the united states and i just can't believe they don't see um, these people for who they really are. Yeah. We found out who all of those people were. My neighbor, you know, an old super conservative neighbor, I didn't realize I um, had been sort of taking care of this 89 year old man in our neighborhood. I bring his trash cans up. My son would bring his garbage up his dry, long driveway. And I would check in on him occasionally um, just to see how he was doing. And he would then bring me fruit from his fruit trees and walk down. And I so so, so Vince, who do you like in this election? What do you like? And he goes, I'm for Trump. And I go, oh, <laughs> hey, so Vince, um, well, um, why are you for Trump? The economy. And I go, well, what about all of the these racism? And we can start there. What about all these people being trapped in the border and just, just, just like treated inhumanely? And what about the hypocrisy? And it's just listed off a couple of things. And he goes, the problem is the Chinese. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> I says, first of all, you know, my wife's Korean, which is not the same thing. But, uh, uh, you know, you've met my wife and been nice to my wife. Uh, and then, you know, I'm Latino. And so I'd, I'd really like to talk to you for a, a bit about this. And there's just like, what am I trying to do? I mean, he's 89 years old. Oh, so hopefully all of these people die off or go so far to the right that which they have that we see them for who they really are, these these nut jobs. 
And it looks like that super conservative party here is, you know, split in two and with no hopes of ever banding back together again. Well, at one point, there must be some kind of disconnect in someone's head, though, when they're going, we've got to worry about the Chinese or it's, you know, the economy, it's immigrate, you know. Oh, but I don't mean you. He worries about these things, but he does like, are you an exception to them? I don't understand the disconnect from thinking, I think this way and this is the way I vote, as opposed to what I'm seeing is the opposite of that. These are people in my neighborhood. Yeah. And and that's, it's also another silly thing that I was doing where I was, you know, I, I live in a very white conservative neighborhood with <laughs> nice homes and I'm, I'm walking around as the good Latino saying hi to everybody. Hey, look, Mexicans are great. I'm one of them. Nice to see you. Hi, how are you? And so I, I just don't know what goes through people's heads. You know, I, I remember in The Daily Show doing a gay marriage piece in the Deep South and realizing that uh, people were horrible behind closed doors. But once you were in their face with it, they were all super polite and Southern. And so maybe that's a bit of it. You know, when you're in the voting booth, you know, something sort of takes over. But when you're standing in front of them, um, super, super polite and cordial. It's fascinating to me as well, because you're talking about being in a white neighborhood. And I suppose in America, I think stuff is split more racially, I guess, in terms of like, I always thought of America as being the melting pot, but actually you see like communities, you'll have like Koreatown or you'll have like uh, Little yeah. Italy and you have neighborhoods where where it's actually not so much of a melting pot. Um, it's people, communities tend to kind of like stick together in, you know, I don't know why that is. Is it a sense of home away from home? My boyfriend's Scottish-Italian, so in Glasgow and Edinburgh, there's a big Scottish-Italian community. Amazing. There you have all the Italian restaurants, and it's just that yeah. thing of people wanting sure. to... Yeah, they cluster together. Yeah, just and I think, uh, you know, in, in not too far away, there's a, a city called Glendale in California where all mm-hmm. the Armenians have gone. Like, the, right. that is a, an Armenian-controlled city. And same thing, it's, you know, there's, like you said, there's Filipino town and it's just sort of comfort in numbers and just they, they have the network. And that's the idea of America, right, though? The idea of America is kind of like built on immigration. This idea that people can come and create a life for themselves and they, oh, there was a beautiful piece in your um your half like me which if you get a chance anyone listening you should watch this because it's 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 where Al sort of delves into the fact that he's his Mexican heritage versus being American or being Americanized as you describe it but there's a great bit where you you meet a guy who borders the like is a patrol is a border patrol not like official volunteers. He was actually a guy that started the um, Minutemen, and I'm, his name escapes me since that was such a, a it was a while ago. But he was the head of the Minutemen, so they were self patrolling the wall. They took it upon themselves. They were a little militia that um, served as these unofficial border guards, armed border guards. Um, yeah, and then he. The kicker, I, uh, he had a Mexican wife, half Mexican grandkids, two, three chihuahuas, was going home to drink a margarita, he said. And so he loved, he didn't just love Mexican culture, like he married, you know, a, a Mexican was in it and still was wanting, you know, there to be no, no Mexicans um you know, in, in at all in the United States or immigrating to the United States illegally. Whereas if, you know, we were overrun with Swedes, I, I really don't think that it would be a problem. That's fascinating to me. You know, you sort of grow up in a household. Did you speak Spanish? Was that part of your, your family? No, no. My dad had such a hard time growing up. So he sent me to French school. He, uh, yeah, sent me to Notre Dame de Victoire. So I went to, I took 14 years of French and my Spanish is embarrassing. So I, I just, yeah, I, again, if we, we had the time machine, I definitely would have started stand up earlier and 
um, <laughs> spoke Spanish, taking Spanish <laughs> in high school instead of coasting through some French. Do you think it's important to have like that sense of identity, you know, in terms of your, I suppose, in your career, in terms of writing and comedy and everything else? I used to really identify as a San Franciscan. I, and, and I sort of let go of that a bit because there's this big rivalry between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but in terms of like stand up and material and, um, fodder for standup uh, and and your writing. Um, I love. I've always loved comedians who open up on stage, talk about themselves, and so it just gives you, you know, the when you have a, a rich background, it just gives you, you know, like I said, more material um, to pull from. I, I never really took to comedians that were just up there pretending to be someone else or a character or anything like that just don't didn't have any time for him or to not a fan of one-liner comics i appreciate it i i totally get it like mitch of course i think was a genius and there was a lot of uh personal stuff in there if he and it was you know his act was very him um but people that were just up there um, telling jokes were never really for me. I, I, I liked this. I was identify with the storytellers and to be a storyteller, you have to have a sort of rich, full life. Were there any of those sort of storytellers who you sort of embraced in terms of stand up? Any influences that you, apart from the ones that lived on your block and stuff like that, <laughs> right. are I, there well, are there like sort of filmmakers or writers who do that kind of thing that you that you looked at and went, they're revolutionary. They've opened something up in my mind, a portal. Three stand out, or two in particular: Dana Gould. Um, and uh, I loved how he was able to do characters. I love people that are, are telling longer stories and acting out um, all those characters and doing voices along the way. And so Dave Chappelle, uh, Dana Gould, um, Patton Oswalt does that. You know, I, I think Marin is fantastic as a, a comic. Um, and so just always latched on to those long form storytellers that were, you know, performing all of these and you know a variety of characters growing up eddie murphy was every single child my age listened to uh, eddie murphy <laughs> raw and delirious and again you know the him um doing all those different impressions along the way of family members and to, yeah, just yeah, i thought it was genius and so um yeah that those were those were my big sort of for influences, I think. What's your first sort of like political memory? Well, actually, I, I'll show you this. This is my first political memory is right behind me. And I know this won't show up, but that is a picture of me in my little French sailor suit outfit that I'm showing <laughs> You're so to. Cute. You're so, adorable. <laughs> so that's when I was five years old and I was chosen by our school think that's Valerie Etcherin, but probably haven't seen her too much since. But um, that is Mayor George Moscone, who was actually assassinated. Wow. Yes. And I think that is the first memory I was chosen to go and visit and uh, the, the mayor of San Francisco. And at that time, I mean, it was a, it's a big, big deal, major city. Yeah, that's that's easily my first political memory because they were so happy that I got to do that. In terms of my parents, I don't remember them ever really talking to me about politics too much. I do know that they went to vote every single opportunity they had. So that was they were very clear. I remember standing in line with them voting. And so we instill that in our children. My son was very happy to turn 18 this year. So went to vote for the first time and took a picture with his voting sticker and it was very cute. So I knew that they definitely believed in the process and know that my dad just hustled so much to make things work. But, you know, as my mom is this um, 
you know, working her way up at that company, not making any money at all. My dad is trying to sell wine and he was an artist who also sold art to pay for right. our tuition at the, the fancy French school that we went to. So I just think my parents were so exhausted that from working that he wanted to come home and watch the Lawrence Welk show and watch just nonsense and sit down and have his dinner and then go to sleep and then wake up and do it all over again. So we were, I think even in potentially like, and I'll have to talk to my mom about this, but intentionally sheltered as well. Right. That makes sense. If they're working hard to kind of get up the next kind of step up the ladder and kind of go, this is the life we want for our kids. Sometimes you don't have time to be political. What you're doing is political. Your life is, you know, trying to live that dream and elevate your family. And that's the other thing is so you, you talked about it a little bit, but there's very few Latinos in stand-up comedy. There's very few Latinos in television and filmmaking. Same with the Asian population here is, is having a very difficult time breaking into TV because we really aren't told that these are jobs and with the, the job that they want as they're working and breaking their backs for us to take on and get these educations. It's, it's lawyer, doctor, you know, stockbroker, something they can brag to their friends about. But when you say my daughter is painting, <laughs> that's a, only a rich person can brag about that. You know, yes. it's like any other person that, you know, is, is struggling is, you know, what? They're painting? Like, and, and maybe that attitude has changed, but um, probably not. It's, it's, something to be embarrassed about. Do you think that's a barrier for entry into into a career in the arts broadly in the states? Do you think do you think the class element is a big thing? Yeah, because there's no they don't see that there's any money in it at this point and we need money now. You need to be rich. I know a lawyer makes if you get your law degree, I know a lawyer is going to make $120,000 a year whatever it is. Um but I don't know what happens when you get your comedy degree, if there's any guarantee <laughs> for a certain amount of income. Yeah, we've probably done as much training as lawyers, but yes, there's no certainties around. You're not going to go to this firm. You're not going to go to the comedy store and be their number one top. Uh, yeah. And it's meritocratic, but it's also not. I mean, like in the UK, we have the Edinburgh Fringe. And it's such an amazing thing. And it is like the like the opening golf in that everyone can do it. However, the barriers to entry are you've got to be able to afford to go up there for a month. So, you know, if you have a family or a young family, that's not necessarily doable. If you're young and you, you, you if your parents have money, basically you can. <laughs> because it costs you like, you know, thousands of pounds to get the PR to hire the venue, to get your posters, to get all the stuff done. Then you've got to get up there and sell tickets. So you've got, you know, most Edinburgh shows take throwing 10 or 20 grand. And who has that money just like floating around unless you're loaded mm -hmm. or your family are loaded? Well, do you find that, uh, and I, I've never even considered it, considering that I have a, a young family, but now that the kids are almost out the door completely, um, I might entertain it. So that's what I think I could go back at this point with my yes. 20,000 and right. just, and set myself up. And um, do you see comics doing that? Do, do uh, more established comics ever come back once they've... More established, well, like Mickey Flanagan, who'd been just like an absolute hero on the club circuit forever in the UK, was 12 years into stand-up before he ever did in Edinburgh. And the great thing about Edinburgh is that you can still win newcomer no matter how long you've been going. So you get acts like kind of turn up who are like seasoned, incredible, amazing stand-up comedians. And, you know, they can come in and bring an hour and everyone like loses their mind oh amazing cool yeah yeah so right. so you could i mean uh chris gethard did it a couple of years ago that kind oh, of awesome. yeah and he was he he did a show about depression it was very funny but he did a brilliant brilliant show and so so i think you can yeah you can be on the other side of that when you can afford to go into it but i i think a lot of the careers here in the arts acting especially you have to be able to afford to go to drama school in the uk that's such a i didn't and i got an agent when i was a kid and i sort of fluked my way into a lot you say dabble i'm i'm kind of like i just kind of got lucky 
and this agent took me on and I kind of landed a couple of jobs but you know the barriers for entry into like acting here you need to be able to afford to go to one of the acting schools or a private school and then the people who are making the shows also go to those schools and the people who run the TV channels. So it's class is a big part of it here. Well, if you think about what I did with uh, all things comedy, yes. there's the barrier, the same barrier to entry here in the States. You know, everybody went to these Ivy League schools. You know, all of the networking TV executives might be a little bit more diverse now, but they just went to they went to Princeton just like their, you know, uh, previous their boss did. So I started my own network that is producing t- television shows and on its way we are the number one comedy podcast network in the world um it's uh, all things comedy this isn't a tiny revolution this is a big revolution because i feel i don't want to say activism but it's uh, a really really important thing so it's you and you and bill burr right you set this up. Correct. And so we um, just wanted to create a, a fair system where we have complete transparency, where we're not hiding money from anyone. When when we do produce something, um, all of the money goes into that particular project. And, and we are, you know, we, we had a big documentary come out here, the Patrice O'Neill documentary that hopefully you can watch, Killing is Easy and have had a, 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 a ton of specials. Um, we uh, produced Bill's special, um, uh, Ronnie Chang's special, uh, Ian Edwards' special, Jessica I was at Ronnie's. Special. I was oh, at the recording at of that, yeah, in Glendale, right? Yeah, 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 that looked great. Yeah, didn't it? Wasn't it fantastic? It, uh, it was amazing. It, I love it. So the economy of his writing is, uh, he's phenomenal. He really is incredible. I didn't know you guys had produced it, but you could tell that it was people who knew comedy by the way the setup, like the theatre, how it was done, how it looks. Also, editing. I just feel when I watch specials, you need comedians. Either the comic who's there in the edit, preferably going like the shots, punch in here, because this you need to come in here and then pull mm-hmm. back out here when I do the punchline. Like it's such a, such a niche-specific skill, I think. So I think you really see that in Ronnie's. Yeah, it's um, we have gotten really good at it uh, because we really do care and we want exactly what Ronnie wants. There's no other agenda um, other than let's take care of Ronnie here and make sure that we are able to. And he watches it's called Asian Comedian Destroys America on Netflix. (laughs) And, you know, just because it's so good, but that's exactly what he wanted. So we're just delivering on, you know, his sort of idea of what he wants this special to be. And so we're doing that with Bill. We're doing it with Whitney Cummings. If we did a robot, we did a robot special. We're just trying to help the comedian achieve their goal of, you know, whatever that may be. So, um, yeah, that's where we can. It is disruptive because I don't like being a pawn in anybody else's game. I don't want I'm auditioning and tap dancing for all of these executives in hopes that I might make twenty thousand dollars no yeah i remember i was on a movie and watching all of the producers drive up and eat filet mignon on plates and drink fiji water and i was like oh yeah i want that and so and but i just also want that level of control so i can make sure that my friends don't get screwed over too so that's a a huge part of this and if we're able i'll tell you what the ultimate goal is is that i really want to had a a comedian pass away i've had a a lot of comedians pass away on me that i've been friends with but one in particular was my friend from starting out in san francisco to sort of bring it full circle and he he died really because he had no health insurance. Wow. And so what I want to do with all things comedy ultimately is provide a, a clinic that comedians can go to. I'm not sure if I can, I, I, I think I can provide ultimately like providing health insurance is incredibly, incredibly expensive. But if I could just, 
pay of a you union. physicians to do. Well, yeah, I'd have to unionize and it would be much more complicated than me. I've given this a lot of thought than me <laughs> opening up my own clinic and employing yeah. doctors on for a two week period that could open up a facility and schedule appointments so I could get comedians physicals every single year. So if I can get all of these actors and performers annual physicals, then we could start there and make sure we nip anything in the bud and then take care of that's beautiful that's a phenomenal thing to do so i just want to say that that's really amazing <laughs> no we'll get there eventually but it, that seems like the most achievable way to see that people get some sort of health coverage by recognizing you know anything before it becomes a bigger problem and so and then once we discover somebody has cancer then it's it's on them <laughs> one of the huge things I think about America versus here and I I sort of started talking about it recently in stand-up I guess in relation to drinking why Americans I think drink less than the UK because we have health insurance and I think the first time <laughs> I've ever been to hospital was a drink related injury like and they fix that shit for free right yeah <laughs> like so we just drink so much because we're like less consequences totally. <laughs> um but but even within that even within the the idea that comedians could support each other uh, a friend of mine had a heart attack here and we sort of and it wasn't that he couldn't pay his hospital bills and he had operations but also the fact that he couldn't work like he's a comic who plays clubs so he's like got to take six months off and even after that they're like the amount of adrenaline and everything else we get when we do stand up you know we're like dealing with huge spikes and the body chemicals are going crazy so he's like they're like we'd like you to not perform for an extended period of time so the comedians set up this kind of like there was a big benefit gig and we mm -hmm. just you know and I think that sort of runs now I don't know how much money it has in it but there were lots of comedians will do gigs and then we've got this pot of money to kind of go no one else wants to look out for us so we have to look out for each other yeah and um I've been incredibly realistic when I got into this and just knew that I never wanted to I never wanted to be in a position where I needed to do stand-up comedy over the age of 50. Right. So I say, if I cannot get to the point where I'm relying on this for an income because I just don't want to be desperately popping around from paid gig to paid gig and dealing with the same assholes, um, you know, the, the people yelling out. So, But also not just people who are in the audience, people who run venues and gigs. Oh, they're the worst. There are some great clubs and great people, but there's also some real assholes. And none of us, we didn't want a boss. That's why most of us got into this. Then you find yourself dealing with a series of mini bosses sure. so this guy at this joint never wants to book me because he doesn't like me or you know so, so and so yeah it's another big goal of mine to take all of their power away yes. um and so in the united states so there's no reason why that we can't form a network of independent venues and and, and enable a transparent white label ticketing system so you can see exactly how many tickets have been sold. You can use our marketing platform to help promote the gigs. Um, but yeah, I think these club owners, these mini bosses that you're talking about are, are a, a huge problem. Um, and again, you know, there's small business owners that are trying to make it work. But a lot of them are people are there to see the comedy and they they're treating the comedians like shit. So we were going to take that over as well. Uh, just all in good time. I, 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 I was cautioned early on not to be like Yahoo and try to do too much, you know, try to do everything. <laughs> so we wanted to be great at distributing audio. And I think we're getting we're, we're really good, but we're getting better every single week. And then we want to be. Um, you know, great at, at great producers. And then we'll start to hang ticketing and more stuff off of this as we go along. But in terms of the revolution, like whatever it is that you want to do, I really encourage people listening to this just to take over. Don't be complacent and, and really try to be disruptive and whatever that thing is that's, you know, nagging you constantly. And if you do have some little bug to start a company or bake professionally, whatever it is, just do it, do it, do it, do it as soon as possible. Because if I could, I would definitely go back in time, like we talked about and start earlier and 
I'd be I'd be speaking Spanish um, and not French and, uh, <laughs> and uh, a more established comic. How do you deal with criticism and does it affect the work? Yeah, not better now. I used to be someone that would read comments. Now I've uh, I've, I've gotten off all social media pretty much, and so I'm 100% off of everything I'll, I'll log in maybe once every two months. Um, because I think again, Facebook is for my mom. Um, Instagram is just a huge distraction that makes you think every, you know, it's just, everyone's living these glorious rich lives and Twitter is just evil. Um, Twitter just makes you feel horrible about yourself. Even if you're just reading the news, the, the last thing you want to do is just you scroll through and you start looking at all the comments. It's it's very upsetting. So I'm off of all of it and I've never been happier or more productive. And, you know, I think like we, we started talking about COVID um, made me realize what's important and happiness is really important to me. And so I, I have been trying to meditate and I just feel like I'm at my best right now. And um, you cover sort of all my questions before I ask them. So I love that because I was going to say, what are the things that you think have helped you in your creative life? So meditating is up there, is it? Getting off social media. Get off social media because you just really don't need to be on it. If you're a comedian, you're like, oh, I need to promote gigs. You really don't because there's a lot of that shouldn't be on us. Right. <laughs> and, uh, it just shouldn't. Yeah. And it just doesn't matter because um, you look at, there's so many successful actors and comedians that don't have anything. Uh, and um, in terms of, I think you're just doing it for you so you can let other people know what you've been up to. And there's a lot of ego involved there. And so once you drop that ego, realize what's important to you and just focus on that and just really taking it all in. There's this, you know, mindfulness approach to, I've been going on a long, a lot of long walks starting in COVID and just really noticing things that I didn't take in before. Um, I think you do such a great job of it. In London, I made so many people like a a, a walk to a Sunday roast or whatever. Like I, I think yeah, it's just yeah. I want to do that uh, every single <laughs> Sunday. So I am, um, yeah. I I just love walking in a, a park and the meditation of it all, and it, it allows me to focus again on what I love, which is. You know, I love hanging out with friends. I love uh, my family. And um, that's just every, seeing everyone around me happy makes me so happy. I love, you know, I'm, I, I really enjoy traveling and exploring. So um, success in stand-up and success in comedy and success with all things comedy is just going to allow me to, you know, take more walks in, in nice places. That's really, really lovely. I think happiness is such a is such a huge thing. I was speaking to another comic about this recently and I said, I feel like this job or this career can make you postpone your happiness constantly. And what am I postponing it for? And the pandemic has done that for me. It's made me go, I want to feel joy and sort of magic in my days and have now. Mm -hmm. Not what am I going to get in a year's time and am I going to book this show and am I going to do this thing? And am I, I may not get all the things, but I'm going to get all the right things. I'm going to get the things that are right for me. Sure. So... My daily is like I get up and I, I write down all the stuff I'm thankful for. Right. Yeah, it's just a really nice way of bringing me into the room to go, oh, I've I've got so many, so many like things to be grateful for and to be happy about. I love the walking as well. And you're like Hemingway. Hemingway walks before he, he used to walk before he, he wrote. That was his morning routine. You mentioned meditating as well. Do you meditate on the walk? Do you do like a guided? I don't. I listen to um, a lot of music, a lot of podcasts on the walk, um, and then try to, there's a great app called Insight Timer. So you can just pick the whatever meditation, uh, but there is a... Uh, uh, meditation for creatives uh, that's on there that Ooh. you can search. Connecting with your creative muse on Inside Timer. And it's, <laughs> it seems like a fake name of the whoever this woman is guiding it, but it's uh, 
It's Glenda Cedarleaf. Perfect. But I listen to that, you know, yeah. Any sort of just breathing or realizing, you know, making you focus on what's important because getting caught up in just nonsense and then the drama that'll find its way to you in, in, in politics or, you know, in your life, there's always going to be some sort of disruption. I remember with this new attitude uh, that I ran into a dad who was complaining about our daughter's school so much that he pulled the daughter from the school. And my daughter, he had convinced me just to put the daughter in the school. So I said, he was complaining about it. And I go, what if you just went into this thinking that it wasn't going to be perfect and there was always going to be problems and there was going to be a bad teacher and there was going to be grades that you didn't agree with. And there was going to be this administrators that you didn't agree with. And, and just what if you went into that with the attitude that it, nothing is going to be, you know, ideal. And I go, would I be okay then? And he goes, yeah. And uh, he, <laughs> like he made him really think about it. Like he was approaching something, just thinking that it would, this school was going to be perfect. Well, guess what? No school is perfect. And uh, no situation is perfect. And no audience is going to be perfect. And then when they are, you're just, uh, you know, Buddhist mentality that sort of. Let go of perfection is really beautiful. <laughs> just let go of the idea of. It's, it's crippling, right? Oh, for for sure. Because, you know, I, 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 you know, especially with stand-up, if we bring it all back to stand-up, like, you know, these crowds or situations or rooms or audience, it's just, it's never going to be ideal. And when it is ideal, you can get off stage and go, what, that's, that's great. That's why I do it. But, um, you know, when it's not, it's like, yeah, that's, what do you think you're doing here? You're, you're performing in front of a bunch of drunks. You know, when the, the show goes bad in Miami, who wants to listen to a guy stand up and talk for an hour in Miami? <laughs> There's a beach right there, guys. Yeah, they should be <laughs> dancing and humping each other and, and with very little clothes on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Al Madrigal, for joining me on Tiny Revolutions. Thanks so much for having me. You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post, Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Andy Bush. I'm here to tell you about our weekly board games podcast that you might just love called Bush's Board Game Thing. Every week, me, Brian and Eloise get together, sit around a table, play a few board games and mainly just go off on massive tangents about life and stuff like that. It's less about the minutiae of the board games themselves. What we love is the fact that games bring people together and can spark conversation. Each week, we have a terrible board game fact from Brian, which absolutely makes him ramble into the wall. And one of you guys get in touch to pitch us a board game that hasn't been made yet. Our favourite so far was uh, an extremely tired dad who came up with a board game about camping and going for a wee in a hedge. Bush's board game thing, give it a listen, it might just change your life. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 